you are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. You are about to see. You are about to see. That belongs in a museum. You are about to see the first public exhibition of an entirely new form of entertainment. That belongs in a museum. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Treasury Cast, the show that celebrates the greatest comics format of all time, the Treasury Edition, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and joining me this month to talk about famous first edition number F8 Flash Comics number one. I've been waiting to get to this one for a long time, is my friend and renowned comic writer and artist, Gabriel Hardman. Hi, Gabriel. Hey, thanks for uh, having me on. Thank you so much for being on. You've been on my Citizen Kane Minute Show, and you've been on my Fade Out Show. So this is your third, third pod. Or no, you've also been on Pod Dylan. So oh, yeah, right. So this, is the, done, yeah, yeah. this is the fourth. I I, uh, I informally give out an award for anyone who does five of my solo shows. So you're now just uh, one, okay. one but what, show. Yeah, but what's the other? What's the show left? Like the Different Strokes podcast or something? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Nothing wrong with that. There's the Super <laughs> Friends one, but we could talk about that. Another, oh, that's another, true. Another I, time, that's so. that's certainly a possibility. I'm they, to there do you that. go. Exactly. With all your credits, I'm sure getting an award from me would be at the at the top of the list there. Um, so I'll take anything I can get. <laughs> so as I said, I've been really excited to to get to this one. Flash Comics number one, famous first edition for for reasons I'll get into shortly. Uh, but you know, since Gabriel, this is your first time on the show, I, I have to ask you, like. What, if any, history do you have with the Treasury format? Did you have any as a kid? Do you have any of them now? Is it anything that is beloved to you in any sort of way? I mean, it's they're not something that I collect in particular, except that uh, they're, I mean, I know that I, I have a few of them. I A lot of my stuff is in storage right now, so I wasn't able to go back through it. But the uh, I know I have a, a couple of them just for uh hunting down art like a conan one or you know like uh you know stuff like that but the um uh and i was aware of them when i was younger i mean i knew of the you know the superman muhammad ali one right is a treasury edition yeah is that yep. correct yeah yep and um and i but i know that i had a uh batman uh hulk uh yes. treasury edition uh and you know and i did i I like this. I like the format of it. I actually was, I actually tried to do a, a comic at, you know, uh, published at this size, mm-hmm. uh, the treasury edition size. It was going to be a book for, uh, that cause like, um, Jim Valentino, uh, who runs shadow line, one of the imprints at image comics got, you know, got excited. I did a book with him previously and he got excited about this idea of doing a, uh, doing treasury size books. And he put out one or two of them. And, uh, like I, and it's, this project is actually something that like uh, a lot of work got done on. It was a real frustrating thing that it couldn't quite get finished. It wasn't Valentino's fault in any way. Uh, but, um, uh, it's something that I maybe will go back to at some point. Uh, but, uh, there, there were a lot of hurdles about the treasury edition size part of it too, because it was hard to put it out as a real book versus like a, basically a big comic book, which is what mm-hmm. these are. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so that limits the, where you can sell them. But, uh, the, 
Um, so I've, I love the format. I love the idea of doing something at this size. It's, it feels very natural to me. Uh, and, uh, like I like, I certainly, I like this size better than the traditional comic book format size. And I'm mm-hmm. always looking for different formats. Like for some reason, like a lot, you know, book, different books I've done that I did a book called Kinski that's done a sort of manga digest size. I've done, you know, I've, I've always liked experimenting with different formats. So I, you know, and I do like seeing the art bigger like this. Well, that's right. That was going to lead into a question. I was going to ask you whether you had anything in your personal history that you would have loved to have. I mean, I'm sure you'd love to see all of it, but if there was anything you had particularly worked on that you would love to see at this size, I know we all know now from the history of the treasury format is it's a hard sell. It's yeah. a hard sell uh, to, because most people that read comics now are collectors uh, they're not just casual fans and collectors sure. want to be able to store stuff and keep it in pristine mint condition and that's hard to do for yes. the treasuries uh that's why the treasuries are so valuable now is because uh they're hard to find in any decent condition because they were impossible to store from the seven most of mine are in pretty beat up shape but i don't really care because i just read them but sure. but yeah it's an it's an uphill climb uh which is a shame because i mean Boy, howdy. I would love to see some of your stuff at, at a treasury size. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know that there's a particular thing. And I did, and I have done a lot. I think about the format that something's going to be in a lot. Right. So like I, you know, I'm trying to do the work towards the format it's supposed to be seen in. Uh, you know, I did this, uh, I did a, a comic called the Belfry, uh, for like a one shot for that, that I put out through image. Uh, a few years ago that is it's a horror comic it's very kind of raw and gritty and like i drew it so small that you know it's only slightly larger than print size so there's something kind of raw about that feeling of that <laughs> i would never want to see that blown up to you know uh to treasury size right like it would just feel really gross looking i think um but the um uh but yeah i mean Honestly, like the, the real answer really is just that that book, that's your book, The Crooked Man, that was intended to be this size and where the originals are drawn to be, you know, uh, seen at that size. Maybe someday that book can get finished. Who knows? Uh, you know, and, um, you know, the, and it was, it's a sort of pulpy, uh, revenge thriller set in San Francisco during the 1906 earthquake. So, uh, it, you know, and it has a lot, you know, it feels like something that fits the format to me. Excellent. Yeah. I'm no sorry. one will ever see it though. So I don't know why I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm constantly <laughs> talking about this. Yeah. Gabriel, what are you doing? You're really teasing us here. Uh, well, that, that leads in perfectly to another thing I wanted to ask you before we get to the specifics of this book. What are your thoughts on the famous first edition conceit? Because it's DC is saying, you know, in the mid seventies, they were like, let's, let's republish some of our most iconic, memorable, historic one issue, you know, one off issues in this sort of more permanent format. Because of course, in the seventies, those books were not available to yes. anybody. They weren't being reprinted. But at the same time, you could argue that the, the, the artwork, as good as it is in some cases, and there's some really great stuff in here was certainly not meant to be seen at yeah. even a larger and for a lot of these artists it doesn't really do them any favors now of course this these books the stories they're reprinting were already at this point 35 years old nobody i don't think anybody really cared but as an artist like how would you feel about you know something that as you just said wasn't meant to be done at that size all of a sudden is now being blown up 
and kind of all the flaws are there for everybody to like really see. Well, I mean, I'm sure that that was frustrating for, you know, for if, if those artists knew that that stuff was happening at that point, who knows? But the, uh, I mean, I remember, um, very early on, I was like 17 years old. I ended up, uh, just through like a family connection meeting, uh, Erwin Hazen, who was, you know, golden age artist. My old instructor at the Joe Kubert school. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, um, you know, and I, uh, you know, I, I just, you know, I brought samples to, to show him. Uh, weirdly, coincidentally, one of them was uh, samples featuring the Golden Age Flash uh, because I was super into Golden Age characters. Oh. But uh, so I um, and he's the guy who he co-created Wildcat, I believe. Right. And, right. Uh, but uh, he I remember him asking me what I thought of his work and said, don't, don't tell me any, don't talk to me about the golden age comics. I did. I'm not proud of any of that stuff. <laughs> right. Like, and <laughs> um, so, and a lot of these guys, you know, they're working in, you know, these almost factory like circumstances, you know, studios under, you know, uh, uh, under, under other people who are packaging comics and selling them and stuff. And so, and they're, you know, uh, and this was, uh, you know, for all the ways that, that comics dominate, you know, or, or content from comics dominate the popular culture in movies and stuff now, like there's nothing, there was nothing more disreputable than the comic book and less like, you know, considered, uh, a, a legitimate thing to do as opposed to being a, a comic strip artist in the, you know, at the time where, those people were revered and they were wealthy and, you know, Milton Kniff and all of them. Right. Uh, you know, they were famous. Right. And uh, and then, you know, drawing comics was like the, you know, the saddest version of that. And you got paid nothing and it's more work to do in a lot of ways and all that stuff. Right. So I can easily see how. And a lot of these guys were young too. They weren't, you know, they, they weren't particularly experienced. You know, they were getting jobs in this disreputable business. So like it, uh, I, I think that, uh, that probably a lot of people have a stigma about had a lot of those guys had like Erwin Hazen had a stigma about that work from that time because it just wasn't thought of very well. That said, a lot of it's not very good. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's just they're, you know, they're struggling to get this stuff done and it's, and, and they're also kind of creating the form at the same time. So mm-hmm. I'm not blaming them. Do you remember when you were a kid, like uh, when you were a kid and you were first getting into comics, like when your first encounter with Golden Age material was? Because I can, again, I'll, we'll get into it in a minute. I can remember literally buying this book off the stands in 1975. Mm. I mean, so, and, and I'm, you know, but we'll talk about that in a second. But do you remember when you first saw some of this stuff? Were you kind of like, oof, you know, or did uh, you kind of no, just. No, no, not at all, actually. I, I mean, I. I don't remember specifically. I know that I saw individual stories and that were, uh, you know, cause I would go through, you know, back issue bins whenever I could and try to find older stuff. I've always been a nerd into older stuff, you know? <laughs> and, uh, so like, you know, and I love, I was, I was all, you know, I was very fascinated by the thirties and forties and that time period in general. Um, you know, I went on to kind of be a huge fan of like, film noir and like all, you know, uh, 1930s and 40s movies. But, uh, I, but I was, as a kid, I was kind of fascinated by the golden age stuff. And this, and I think that a lot like my, my initial, I know that I saw individual stories, uh, reprinted. Uh, I know that, uh, but I know a lot of my interest in that stuff came from, uh, DC put out who's who at the, you know, in the eighties. It was like, you know, 
And, uh, and so like, I loved this, you know, the, the, I loved all the convoluted backstory of DC stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. I loved that there was this, you know, um, that this, there was this whole other history of stuff that had happened. And then, you know, as, as I got just a little bit older, like 12, something like that, I'm interested in who made these things and all that sort of stuff. And I, uh, and the, my, the biggest memory I have is getting uh, a hardcover book of the greatest golden age stories ever told sometime from the mid eighties. And, uh, like that, I like, I poured over that book. Uh, I, you know, uh, and was some, you know, some of the art in it is stuff that's incredibly clunky and, uh, you know, not, not, not the best, but then there's some stuff like, the uh there's Sheldon Moldoff, there's uh Bill F- wait, Lou Fine. Lou Fine. Lou Fine, Lou Fine. Oh yeah. Lou Fine. Uh you know, who did I believe a now I can't remember the character's name, but it is some sort of because I want to say Blackhawk, but it's not Black like, Condor. Black Condor. Black Condor. And uh, you know, and I loved that. Like there were it was it had a kind of, you know, draftsmanship and stylishness and uh I, I you know, I, I particularly for some reason particularly remember like a, a a panel of uh of franklin roosevelt that's just like a close-up <laughs> with a mic in front of him and it's dutch and it has just a, a real like there's a there was a style there that i really liked and there was something that i want you know when i was developing as a you know young comics artist i uh, you know there was something i wanted to reach back for a little bit to that at the same time you know which was pretty foolish considering this is like the late 80s <laughs> 90s this is not what anybody was interested in uh but um but uh but no i even if some of the stuff was clunky i always i always found something really exciting and fun about those golden age stories oh absolutely i mean and of course you know like somebody like a lou fine or like a will eisner uh oh, joe, yeah. Q- and, joe Kubert. i mean somebody yes. that was really even, really uh even, Al- even alex toth you know alex very toth, young alex yeah. toth had uh you know had you know, drew part of, I think, a JSA story that was collected there. And, uh, you know, yeah, Joe Kubert as well. Like, and all the, and certainly those guys later were enormously influential to me. I'm a huge, uh, you know, Will Eisner fan, uh, you know, not as much from back then, but just, you know, as I was able to be exposed to his stuff, you know, on, on the way that, along after that. Yeah, I mean, you got to said these guys. A lot of these guys you were just talking about, like they're working, they're working in shops, and they're cranking out five pages a day. And the reason the stuff looks as good for some of them looks as good as it does is simply because that's who they were. That these guys had to make it look as good as yeah. it could because that's their personalities. You know, they were yeah, like, I yeah. gotta be, I gotta, oh yeah, right. I have to well, draw but, this and, panel of FDR and make it look awesome because and, that's why I'm here. And look, I get that. I mean, I work in movies and stuff, and yet. I still do comics. And if I'm doing a freelance thing, I mean, what I'm working on, uh, freelance, uh, story right now for this, uh, relaunched, um, Brave and the Bold comic at DC. Oh, and, awesome. uh, and like, uh, and I'm doing like a serialized story that go, you know, runs through a couple of three issues of it. And like, I'm not, I can't say who the character is yet. They don't really <laughs> say yet, but the, um, like I, uh, look, it's not like comics pays a ton of money, but like, it's my, that's the job. I, you know, I got to do the absolute best I can, you know, we're, it's not about getting paid. It's about the work. You know? mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like I was saying, I remember it's where I've had, you know, 45 years of accumulated memories since this moment and things have come and gone. There were 
people that I there are uh, people I've dated whose names I don't really remember anymore, but I can remember. Uh, I can remember distinctly my mother taking me. Uh, so this this book went on sale May eighth, nineteen seventy five. So I would have been not even God, not even four years old at this point, and I can remember her buying this for me at the Neshaminy Mall, in Pennsylvania, <laughs> and she took me to she went to get her hair done she went to a hairdresser in the mall Mm -hmm. and and i remember her sitting me down on those hard plastic chairs and she bought me this book this comic and i remember just and and you know this was a uh yes this this book was a dollar it was four times or maybe three times depending i don't can't remember at this point whether comics were a quarter or 30 cents at this point but it was at least triple the price of a standard comic, but my parents bought it because they knew it would keep me quiet for extended periods of time. And in this case, my mother could get her hair done and do all the stuff that she had to get done while I would never make a peep. And I can remember again, amazing to me that this memory is still burned into my brain. I remember looking at this cover, you know, of the, the flat, one of those iconic DC comic covers of all time with the flash running. And of course you'll see that on the the gallery post accompanying uh, this, this episode, but I can remember other women in the uh in the hairdressers commenting what a quiet little kid i was because they were <laughs> amazed and it was like well that's what it was if you put a comic in my hand i was just boop quiet you know it never made right, a noise right and i still you know and i remember it being this one and like you it's like i always loved 40 stuff i watched avon Costello movies and universal horror that ran on ran in syndication I there was some even though the art in a lot of these stories is pretty crude, there was something about it being a window into a world that I was completely unfamiliar with. Yes. Outside yes. of reprints uh, that because even comics in the 70s look very different than now they look here. And that was the part that just fascinated me. That, and so I was very accepting of very what to my eyes are pretty crude art styles, but it didn't matter because it just seemed like, oh, this is. I'm being taken back in time, literally being taken back in time here. And I couldn't, I wasn't able to think like that at four, but that's, that's what held the appeal was that I was able to look at these stories and just be enraptured by them, even though they look very different than what I was seeing in 1975 with Neil Adams and, you know, (laughs) all these modern artists at that time. Uh, And it still holds up. I reread this book for this episode. I was like, yeah, it, it it just it it works. It all just works. It's pretty fun. Though, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The, um, I do remember having uh, this was a little bit later. I was like early, maybe early teens or something. But I it, there was a comic store that I kind of worked at for a little while when I was like thirteen, fourteen, and uh, I and the guy who ran it. I remember like uh, I mean, look, I was I can be a little contrary. I was certainly a contrary kid, uh, and uh, I remember uh, you know being real high on the idea of these you know of of like the 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 golden age stuff and the you know the the and i liked the quality of of a lot of the art i liked the feel of it and there was there was something just raw and interesting about a lot of it and i also liked that they were not like the you know uh neil adams ish 
uh, cut muscles, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I liked that, that it, that it was set apart from all of that stuff. And I remember having a, an argument with the guy who ran it because I was like, <laughs> no, this stuff is, this is way better, you know? And he's like, how could you say that? How could you, and you know, and then him rapturously talking about, you know, fetishizing these muscles and everything. Right. But, uh, it's like, dude, you know, come on. Uh, but, uh, uh, but that said, you know, uh, I, I don't know that, um, the uh, I don't know that the art in the the first uh, uh, the first story in here the flash story is uh, is is making my argument for me very well right right okay well said let's let's talk about it um, just so you know everybody I decided I'm not going to do story synopses for the five stories in here because I just felt as a little tedious because they're all except for the except for one story uh, they're all just origin stories they're all just the these the, this comic Flash comics number one is well chosen by DC to represent the building blocks of their publishing empire. Because in this single book alone, you've got the debut of the flash Hawkman, Johnny thunder and the whip. Now. Okay. The whip, not exactly, you know, one of the, to the level of those other three, but he is still in use today every so often. Uh, And then you talk about the flash and Hawkman. I mean, just a couple of days ago, I watched the Black Adam movie. My thoughts about that movie aside, yeah. Hawkman is in it. Yeah, yeah, it was two hours. We'll never get back. Yeah. But I mean, it's like these are major. I I hate to call them this, but that's what they are. These are major IP for a multi-billion-dollar conglomerate, and it all starts here in this one single comic. This is how much you know, I sure ideas were burning out of these guys, which like, you've got these concepts that are still in use 80 years later. If you had told any of these guys. Well, and luckily them and their, you know, uh, their heirs uh, were, um, you know, given tons of money and, uh, uh, you know, well taken care of for the hard work that they did that everybody's been uh, uh, living on. Well anyway. compensated for their efforts <laughs> yeah, uh, here. They in the got, game. yeah, they got. So, uh, they got but, a page yeah, <laughs> let's talk about the cover a little bit. It's, it's again, it's one of the great iconic images of say DC Comics or even comics lore of these two goons in the front and the uh, the foreground, and they're 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 shaded in purple, and they're firing a gun at a woman, and then bam, here is a guy with a pie plate on his head running into the frame and stopping the bullet. And then you've got these insets saying the Hawkman, Johnny Thunder, the whip and Cliff Cornwall with this great logo flash comics. It looks exciting as all get out. I mean, as a, as a cover, what do you think of this as a composition, Gabriel? I think it's pretty good, actually. I mean, it's, you know, it's got a, it, it has a triangle leading your eye into the place where you're supposed to be looking. Yep. Uh, the, um, you know, and, and the, the draftsmanship is pretty good. Although I would say that one of the things that always sticks out about these stories is that these guys were doing stuff very quickly. And I think they were mostly guys, uh, doing this stuff, uh, you know, quickly and in a often slightly amateurish way. And a lot of how that shows up is it feels like they're pulling from different styles of of uh, of art that they like or are referencing probably from comic strip art or illustration and uh and i'd say that i i you know i don't feel like the the style of drawing on the flash compliment it feels like the same thing as the drawing of the woman so mm-hmm. i mean like i think those styles are too are, are at odds it feels like maybe the, these these two poses might have been referenced from something else Hmm. from two different, you know, uh, sources. Um, 
Oh, that's fine. Uh, also, I have to point out that uh, I would have uh, given him a note on the hand there. The way that it goes against the uh, the skirt is a tangent, and it uh, <laughs> makes it makes it a little awkward. Whatever. Don't like the tangents. Uh, but, yep. <laughs> um, but the uh, uh, but like I do think it's a solid. It's it's Sheldon Moldov, isn't it? it yeah. I mean, yep. uh, so um, you know, and I I definitely think he's the strongest artist in here. So uh, you know, I'm generally very positive on this. All right. Fair enough. Uh, on the inside cover of this famous first edition, again, for those of you who don't remember these or didn't have them, these books are reprinted exactly as they appeared in whatever year they first appeared in. Yes, they're oversized, but other than that, everything is exactly the same. They've made no changes. So on the inside cover is an ad that ran in the, in the original comic, which is an ad for all American comics number one, which, or no, excuse me, number 10. Uh, which at the time was still a humor comic. It featured stuff like Mutt and Jeff, uh, Wiley of West Point. I mean, all hot and Hop Harrigan, who was actually an adventure strip. Uh, it does mention Gary Concord, Ultraman, but it was mostly kind of a humor book. And, you know, it's number 10. Green Lantern de- debuted in number 16 and just took over the book at that point. So you sort of see, you know, you're like, okay, this is, they're still, the comics industry is still kind of figuring out what's selling and what isn't. And of course they started with humor because it was all strip reprints of comic strips. And then eventually once the one Superman came in, it took a couple of months, maybe even a year or two to realize, Oh yeah, no, that's it. All the books are going to get converted over to superhero comics. That's it. Yeah. I mean, it's still coming out of a kind of thing of, you know, uh, um, the, uh, coming out of that, that idea of just kind of repackaging comic strips into a different format and, you know, and I mean, the, the whole industry is finding itself and trying to figure out what it even is. So, yeah, I mean, it, they, they're definitely uh, all those early books, like the early detective comics and everything. They're all kind of like searching for something. That, mm-hmm. And I guess it turned out to be superheroes. Yep. 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 <laughs> um, I mean, you can you can look at like the history of if you go to Mike's Amazing World and you look up Flash comics and you look at the run and it's just every cover, despite this book having multiple features across it's a hundred and four issue run. Every cover is Flash or Hawkman. That's it. They just alternate between Flash or Hawkman. They knew those were the the drivers. In fact, they realized Flash was such a big seller that they eventually gave him his own title called All Flash Comics, which was what it, what it sounds like: All yeah. Flash, nothing else. But they knew the Whip and Cliff Cornwall were not selling the book. It was Flash and Hawkman. But anyway, the reason I mentioned this ad is because as a kid. I can remember loving seeing these ads, seeing these vintage ads, because yeah. again, it was showing me stuff that I'd never seen. All American comics was long gone by the time I was ever around. So I love seeing these, you know, at the time ads of what it looked like. I always loved that. I love that they did that for the famous first editions that they reprinted them ads and all. I just thought that was so yeah. awesome to get this, I, you know, peak. It's also context, right? Yeah, like it's yeah. not just like plucking the story out and reprinting it somewhere. It's giving you a little bit more of the whole experience of it. I've, you know, occasionally I'll like, I'm not a huge, huge collector, but I, you know, I'll, uh, you know, a couple times I've picked up like individual EC comics, you know, from the horror era and everything. And like, uh, and just enjoyed being able to go through them and, not just see the stories plucked out and reprinted, but like see everything, you know, yeah. the, just the feel of it, just the feel of, you know, uh, of, of having all of the, you know, all the ads and all of the other stuff. And it, it, it changes the way that you, you read something. Absolutely. I mean, this is my dad read comics and read comics at this age. Cause he would have been 
let's see, seven when this came out. So he might have read this. You know, this mm-hmm. might have been what he read. And this is exactly what he saw. These are the ads uh, that he saw. And so, I, again, I love that concept. So the first story is, of course, The Flash by Gardner Fox and Harry Lampert. Now, Harry Lampert only did The Flash strip for two issues. Yeah. And as we mentioned, he didn't even do the cover. That's Sheldon Moldoff. He does the, I mean, everyone knows the origin of this flash is the hard water. He spills this hard water chemicals and he breeds it in. It somehow gives him super speed powers, whatever. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but Harry Lampert, I mean, talk about a guy who's kind of unsung because he does presumably, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't think we'll ever know the, the details of it because they weren't bothering to, to detail the, to uh, delineate this stuff at the time, but I'm, guessing that the flash's uniform is the work of harry lampert and talk oh, about designing yeah, I, one of the most iconic uniforms in like all of superhero I mean, it's like it's instantly recognizable and this is a guy that after two issues was booted off the strip and never returned to it yeah it is interesting i mean the uh especially since the story it doesn't like it's not like the the costume doesn't come organically out of the story and i know like <laughs> no, he just at some point, literally, like in a you know uh, in a little exposition type box, it's like. Uh, and anyway, he dressed up like Mercury, and, uh, right? You know, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but yeah, it is it is a very iconic thing. I mean, I I've always really liked that costume, and uh, it's. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of you know, obviously, a kind of dorkiness to it because of the hat, <laughs> but uh, but for some reason, that always appeals to me. I never like things that are too slick or too perfect, anyway. I mean, but you know, when, when they they did it in live action on the Flash TV series. You've got I, yeah, John I, Wesley Shipp playing yeah, this version no, of the Flash. That's, that's true. I mean, it's and it's what everybody wanted. You've got a live action human being wearing this. Yeah, it's an outfit that's basically never been replicated at another costume for the most part. I can't think of another superhero that's ever. I mean, the I mean, like the Wizard from Marvel had like the little wings on his on his head right. to kind of simulate. But the the you know the but Mercury it, hat is really unique to this. Character. How many? I mean, yeah, you got your cowls, you got your masks, or whatever. How many? How many characters wear a hat? Like nobody right. ever commits to the hat, you know? Right. Right. Like, exactly, he's flying off and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it just and it sets it up. He got he's got his secret identity, and he's got a love interest, and she's got the kind of the rich father, which is always sort of a thing. And then you've got the the kind of Nazi saboteur characters. And I mean, it's just with such a simple setup. And I mean, good lord, he get he gets the chemical spilled on him in about three panels. And then two panels later, he's like, oh, look, I've got super speed. And then it takes him like a page or two to get completely acclimated to using the powers. I mean, he just boom, 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 boom. But it's like in all of what? This is like, a let's see, 13 pages. In 13 pages, Gardner Fox, not knowing it, builds what is going to be one of the steel reinforced girders of the DC universe of this concept of a super speed character who will then we learn in the 50s can travel through time and hop dimensions and there's another flash yeah. and yada 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 i mean next summer or this summer actually is going to be maybe the flashpoint movie <laughs> featuring the flash i mean it's it, it just sort of is so amazing to think that this guy was like oh how about the the flash that sounds good all right let's try that and then look what it turned into well i do think just story-wise and the garner fox wrote this but like I, I do think that there's the one of the weird things that sticks out to me, uh, and and one of the things that is interesting. Okay, one of the things that's interesting about going back to stuff like this is how like they tropes are not fully formed, right? You know, like we don't, you know, we they're still figuring out as they go along, and 
Like, there's no conflict set up for this that then is somehow, like, solved by his powers. It's basically he's uh, he's a guy who's like, gosh, I sure wish I could run fast and play football. And then, <laughs> then, then the accident happens. Then he gets these powers. Then eventually it's kind of like, oh, shit, people are doing lousy things in the world. Maybe I ought to run real quick and stop. And then it becomes a thing with the girl and saving her. But uh, but I just I found it really fun and odd that the you know, that there's not a like there's not a coherent dramatic structure to it either. You know, it's kind of like you're just they're just kind of figuring it out. Right. It's not the origin of Spider-Man, you know, I mean, where there's yeah. like a re- reason why he does this and why he yeah. feels compelled to do that. It's more just like a lark. Oh, hey, right. I can do this. Let's. All right. Sure. There's a bunch of Nazis I got to take care of. All right. That's fine. We'll also, that. I'll play football. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and tennis. All right, great, sure. All right, whatever, it's fine. All good, you know, all good. Um, so the next strip is Cliff Cornwall, and that is by Gardner Fox again, and Sheldon Muldoff this time again, our cover artist. And Cliff Cornwall lasted about eighteen issues into Flash Comics, and then I think for the most part that character just sort of disappeared and never came back. He is definitely a holdover from I'd say an earlier era because he's kind of like a he's a special agent but he's really mostly like a pilot and a lot of the the the, the strip is him and you know kind of aerial uh you know excitement he's in like a biplane kind of thing and that's again it's you know it's 1940 it's not that far removed from the spirit of St. Louis and things like that and where Amelia Earhart and things like that where they, those people were uh heroes in the popular culture and it made sense to create a hero that would be you know there was like a, you know a pilot that was a big thing but other than that i found this strip to be you know kind of bland cliff cornwall himself is kind of bland i'd say but okay. the artwork is quite nice the artwork is great um let me just say this this was kind of my favorite one to reread <laughs> like it was okay the, um i mean it, the partly it's because i think uh you know sheldon maldov is clearly looking to, i mean looking to i mean it's the best art in the, you know in in the book i think uh you know uh, of any of these stories but also uh i'm a big fan of noel sickles and uh the strip that he did in the 30s called scorchy smith which is mm-hmm. an airplane type you know deal and it, you know it's an uh an airplane oriented strip and uh and like i think that there's a lot of inspiration from that in here mm-hmm and uh but i also just i you know it's just nice to see something that even though i do think that he's referencing other stuff and all you know and there's clearly photo referencing here not necessarily tracing it but you know uh the third panel on the first page of the two guys like pointing at a map or whatever that is a photo that he's drawing from uh and (laughs) um you know but like i think it all actually works really well and i i like that it you know that Everything just feels much more confident in this strip to me. And I like adventure stuff like that. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, there's a certain amount of, I don't know, you know, Indiana Jones ish feeling to, you know, to that sort of stuff. And, uh, and, and I actually have always been drawn to, um, to comics that were, you know, adventure oriented that weren't necessarily superheroes. Mm-hmm. And it's really well drawn. I think it's actually, it's, you know, it's, it's the best looking thing in here, definitely to me. Oh, absolutely. And you could imagine this as like a newspaper strip, you know, yes. it kind of has that. Well, it's emulating. 
yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Milton Kniff kind of thing to it, and yes. yeah, and beautiful. Like the inking is really. I'm presumably it's Moldoff doing it himself, oh, inking sure. himself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I said, I said, I find Cliff. Cor- I mean, I to be fair, I've probably this is probably the only one of his I've ever read because I think he only ever appeared in. 17 more issues of Flash comics, and I don't know where I ever would have ever read them. So yeah. maybe I'm judging him too harshly based on this one story. But it is beautiful to look at. And Moldoff... Yeah, look, is- I'm sorry, Greg Berlanti has not made a Cliff Cornwall <laughs> TV show yet, all right? Just- but this, <laughs> this is one of the things where Moldoff benefits from the bigger size, because he has kind of a lot of detail yeah. in his panels, and it's nice to see it at a slightly bigger size. I bet, And I bet some of it got lost in the original printing of it, too. You know, like, so, that's yeah. a whole thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's only so much detail you could put in back then before it just, you know, doesn't, it becomes mush or just doesn't make it onto that plate. Right. <laughs> so next up is The Hawkman, as he's referred to, not just Hawkman. Uh, but, I mean, again, another character that DC would go on to use forever and ever and ever. This is written again by Gardner Fox for Pete's sakes and uh, Dennis Neville, another artist who would only really be on the strip for a couple of issues. And then Sheldon Moldoff actually took over the Hawkman strip. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, but uh, but here you've got again, the basic origin of the Golden Age Hawkman. Now, his look is a little different than what a lot of people remember, because he doesn't always the, the big hawk mask that he's got isn't sitting. It's sitting like on his head. A lot of the time with his face, his human face poking out from under it. Right. And you've I, got the, so it's strange looking, but you know, cool. I got to, I, I got to just frame this in a certain way. It's, a, it feels a little bit mind blowing in the moment. He's wearing a hawk hat. He's, it's just a hat, right? <laughs> like he, it's not a mask. He's the second character in a row. He's just wearing a hat. So, uh, like I, I never thought of it that way before. Like, uh, you know, I, I was aware of, and you know, I'd been, I read, uh, um, all-star squadron and stuff, uh, oh, yeah. in, in the eighties. So like, uh, you know, all those kind of Roy Thomas books where, you know, he's recycling these things. And so like, uh, I've always been a little, you know, I, a little bit, uh, um, familiar with that, uh, the, the weird older hawk mask where you see his whole face, but I'm telling you, it's just a hat. It's a hat <laughs> shaped like a hawk. What did you what did you think of the story? What did you think of the the origin, the sort of mystical bent that you've got? Because I mean, of course, the Flash story is you know quote unquote hard science, and then Cliff Cornwall's adventure, and now we're getting into kind of like Eastern mysticism sort of thing. Yeah, and it's so I mean it it's sort of also kind of inseparable from Alex Raymond, Flash Gordon stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that's very clearly what uh, what Dennis Neville was referencing for this. Um, and you know, it very much has that feel, I mean, not as accomplished, but it has that feel. And uh, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's a really questionable way to start a story to have, uh, have your character fall asleep and dream that he was, uh, you know, <laughs> back in, uh, uh, a thousand years ago or whatever, 2000 years ago or whatever. And then, uh, like, uh, you know, and then wake up and go, Oh, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to take a walk after that dream. Or was it me remembering? And, uh, you know, like it's such a questionable, like narrative thing, but it also makes it kind of fun. And, uh, it like, um, I, I, I think it's fun. I think it's interesting. I think it's a weird, slightly abbreviated story. It doesn't, you know, so much of the flashback happens that it feels a little bit like it doesn't get going, uh, at the end, but, um, but I do, uh, I, I like the character. I think the art is pretty decent. It's like, uh, even if it's a lot of, 
a lot of uh, Alex Raymond uh, swiping, it's it still, uh, it helped, you know, like it's, mm. it, it's not bad. I love the panel where the bad guy half set uh, just straight up stabs uh, yeah. harder in the chest. And yeah. you think for a second, like, well, maybe, I don't know, like maybe he's, he's, he missed or that he's going to hit something. And then the next panel, Carter Hall's just standing, laying there with blood dripping out of his chest with the, with the dagger sticking in. Yeah. Like, oh no, there it's just boom. There it is. They're not trying to hide it. Like, I forgot how like, more violent comics were back then. Yeah. He's just like, all right, I'm dying, but I'll live again. And it's like, yeah, what does this guy care? Like it's, you know, like how, how long is that going to take? Like, I imagine I've read this when I was, 40. yeah, I'm yeah. thinking when I was four. What was I thinking when I saw that? Like, wow. Okay. Uh, by the way, Dennis- I got, I have to say though, there's, you know, the, the flashback is all, quasi middle eastern stuff mm-hmm. and he is still a blonde guy you of know course. like uh the uh the the inserting uh white supremacy in there yes. is a little bit heavy-handed but absolutely uh, yeah the white saver sure. always got to yes. be a thing uh yeah. by the way i do mention dennis neville went on to work on the sargon the sorcerer strip over in sensation comics and then he inked joe schuster on the superman comic strip so, yeah, I, I read that he was a Joe Schuster assistant. Yeah. Good for him. Good for him. Yeah. Um, so then the next trip, Johnny Thunderbolt, aka Johnny Thunder. And anyone who's been listening to various shows on our network for the past seven years, we've been doing it. Everyone knows I do not like this character. I've never liked Johnny <laughs> Thunder. I always thought he was just an idiot. I hate that he was in the Justice Society. It's a neat concept. I, I like, you know, the origin story that he's got this, this, this magical thunderbolt that he can bring forth and helps him do stuff. Great concept, but I just never liked Johnny Thunder. Now here, he's not annoying because they didn't develop the personality into the kind of yuts that he became. Um, you know, again, you got to kind of get past some of the talk about the white savior. Like there's a lot of, yeah. you know, oh my God. There, there's the most, I mean, the most openly and look. This is a thing for, you know, uh, for, for reading a lot of these books. But I mean, look, I'm somebody who really likes old media and, you know, silent films and all sorts of stuff. Right. So you're going to run, you have to grapple with the kind of the racism and the stuff that is pretty ugly, you know, uh, you know, through today's lens and, you know, obviously know that that, you know, to some extent was just the times and to some extent not. I think that this is just a kind of, you know, uh, of uh exoticism that yeah. uh you know that that was very much part of paul storytelling at the time but yeah him being uh, uh kidnapped and then like they dye his hair black and make his skin darker and stuff it's just yeah. it's it's a little uncomfortable yeah <laughs> but, uh, but the um uh but i did think that uh, I don't remember reading the story before and I do and uh and the way that his powers are presented is particularly odd and interesting where you know he just kind of turns into I don't know what a thunderbolt with a little storm or something like that to to save people it's uh it's it's a it's a much more abstract version than the you know than the literal thunderbolt type thing that you know came out of him later mm-hmm if I'm not misremembering how we work. They will, they, I mean, they would, I mean, again, this is the first story. By the way, I should mention that it's, uh. Oh, also, it's a lightning bolt. I don't know why yeah. I keep, I keep saying thunderbolt because it's the way it's called. That's yeah. nonsense. There's no such thing as a thunderbolt. Right. Uh, this is not Gardner Fox, actually. This is John B. Wentworth and drawn by Stan Oshmeyer. Uh, Wentworth wrote virtually all the Johnny Thunderstrips and then went on to write Ghost Patrol over in Sensation Comics. So, 
Uh, what did you think of the the artwork itself by by Oshmeyer, who I'm not terribly familiar with? Yeah, I think that it's pretty clunky. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think that it's. Uh, I mean, I, I think he clearly has drawing ability, uh, but it it the way the story's told is pretty clunky. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think it's the worst though. It's not like I mean, you see much worse stuff, and it's and it's competent. And you know, it's I guess it's fitting the tone of the story, which is a big lopey weird mess that uh of a story like uh i do i did find it a little bit charming that it's so um you know unstructured or something uh i also uh enjoyed the there, there's a moment where uh where he runs out to save a guy the first time past the toy section uh and tells a guy to ah oh, go jump a duck and I don't know what the hell that means. I mean, I don't like I like things like the, the where it feels like there's some sort of understood cultural thing in something that I just can't understand anymore. You know, I, I, I did people tell people to jump ducks all the time. Was this like was this a thing in 1940? I, uh, I have never heard it other than this. Yeah. But and then there's a totally weird fall flat gag where he like where the guy then turns to the duck and says boo to it i have no idea what's <laughs> happening in those three panels and like i kind of obsessed over them because like i just i can't understand i don't know what's happening there but uh you know but like uh it's i don't know it's okay it was certainly good for some uh you know a, a little bit of laughing at it more than uh, than going along with it I don't know. and yeah and again i mean thanks to uh john b wentworth dc got another character that they could exploit for the next 80 yeah. years uh never would have expected that so has anybody wait has anybody done anything with johnny thunder in or thunderbolt or whatever uh I, in i like think the last I, 30 40 oh years? lord yeah they they're i mean i think he was done in live action on the Oh, Flash really? TV show, oh, yeah. Then yeah, there you yeah, go. yeah. I guess I yep, didn't see totally. that. Totally. Yep. Um, and then, so then so there just was a Greg Berlanti is the answer. To exactly, Greg Berlanti. Yeah. Uh, then there's a two-page text piece again by Gardner Fox. My God, the amount of pages yeah, this guy's this cranking guy. up. Called Warfare in Space, and I do not know whether these text pieces were done to observe uh, postal regulations. Or I, was I would it done? Imagine to, that was usually yeah. the reason why they had that right. stuff, right? They had to have right. They had to have certain amount of text material to qualify for certain uh, uh, mailing rates, which al- allowed the books to be mailed in a cheaper weight or something like that. So I always assume that's why these were in there. Yeah. Uh, also, Gardner Fox was a, a writer. You know, he didn't just write comics; he wrote actual uh, books. And so this probably could have dusted this, you know, pulled this off in his sleep—a little two-page sci-fi adventure with little spot illustrations. And it's also, it's, I mean, presumably it's four pages because we don't get the end of the story. Like it's. Well, that's uh, true. It, right. Right. Know, right. It's yeah. a, to be concluded. Did to you actually continue. read this? I did. I did. It's, you know, okay. I read it too. I read it too. <laughs> I did my job. Yeah. Uh, the, um, although there's nothing in it half as good as, uh, as the insert, uh, panel, uh, visual of, uh, Ralph Farnham space pilot. <laughs> Which With a little skull and just, crossbones on his helmet. And the little skull and crossbones and his look on his face, like, uh, like, yeah, look, I'm Ralph Farnham. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, that is so lame sounding. Like, I can't imagine in 1940 that sounded any less lame. The name, you know, uh, the name really strikes terror into the hearts yeah, of everybody. Ralph, Ralph Farnham. Oh, Farnham, boy. Who's going to yeah. sell you some insurance and then, you know, <laughs> plunder and pillage. Uh, the, <laughs> but, uh, the, um, I mean, 
it was competent. It was a, an amusing little thing. It's probably a lot of the reason I've never been an enormous fan of sci-fi prose. What because so often it, you know, I mean, that's that's a very broad statement. I don't really mean that. There's lots of pro sci-fi stuff that I love. Uh, but like in a kind of general way, I don't like stuff where people focus on gadgets and stuff instead mm. of characters. And this is a lot about uh, can I try out my new space gun? You know, like right. there's there's right. like it's, it's all about a space gun. So whatever. But it was relatively competently written, I think, for something yeah. that he presumably cranked out very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a page for something called Flash Stamps, which seems to be just an ad for stamps that they stuck the word flash on, I guess, maybe to thinking they could get kids to pay attention to it more. It doesn't have any connection to flash. It doesn't, but I do think that there is something weird about it in that these are Polish stamps (laughs) and this is 1940. So Hitler invaded Poland in 1939. And, -hmm. you know, uh, and like, this is kind of the core of, you know, the all, you know, the brewing world turmoil of, you know, that becomes World War II. And I, I just think it's an odd coincidence that they're selling Polish stamps at the point where Poland is kind of, you know, the focal point of, of, uh, of the world going wrong, starting to go yeah. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It, it said, it, it, even as a, as an adult and as a kid, I was like, what? Like, I just yeah. didn't understand what this was. Uh, I, next... looked, I think the stamps look neat, though. I wouldn't mind. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the, at the time, <laughs> FDR was a stamp collector. You know, oh, that yeah, was yeah. his big hobby. So, I yeah. mean, it was kind of a cool thing. Uh, the next strip is called The Demon Dummy. A, it's called a flash picture novel in two parts by Ed Whelan. And this guy, Ed Whelan. Now, if you look at it, I get the vibe just from the way this is constructed, from the fact that it's a lot of close-ups and the dialogue. It's very heavy dialogue. The balloons are almost in, in some panels, like, more than three fourths of the real estate that this was an unsold comic strip. That's the vibe I get from. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's all on a grid as well. Yeah, that too. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the other, the other strips aren't necessarily, they're clearly made for a comic where you could, you know, I mean, obviously nothing wrong with a grid, but right. You know, you don't have to do that on on a comic page the way you do on a comic strip. It just feel it feels very much like that, and we know that a lot of the again a lot of the comics were a lot of unsold stuff. He did this Ed Wheeling guy again, who I'm not too familiar with. I, he went on to to do a lot of these uh, things. I guess you know they had to fill out the pages. These books are like 64 pages for Pete Six. He did another feature. Just I just wanted to mention because of the name Butch McLobster, which just made me laugh. I don't I don't know what it is. I haven't seen it, but I love the name so much. It's Butch McLobster. Is, so is Butch McLobster a DC thing? Like yeah, it, yeah. I guess they own Grant, him somewhere. Has Grant has Grant Morrison brought him back yet? Because otherwise, I would I'd be into it. Greg Berlanti, get on it, man. Butch, yeah, Butch McLobster. <laughs> Greg on the phone. So I mean, again, and you know, you, they were Flash comics. Obviously, it's superhero. It's superhero bent. Because Hawkman, Johnny Thunderbolt, but they also are then they are still trying to kind of give kids a little bit of everything. It's got you know mystical adventure, science adventure, uh, aerial adventure, and then you've got this kind of humor with uh, kind of gangsters and Dems and those kinds of guys. So they're they're trying to you know for your for your dime, they really are. Tr- and then you've got the text piece. They're trying to give kids like just a little bit of everything. Yeah, I, I mean the, this is you know like it. It also feels the art is there's a much heavier hand to the art like big mm-hmm. you know uh like it was all drawn with a big fat brush basically yeah. except for some of this dubious hatching and stuff that's in here 
but um the uh but i do think it has kind of a neat style to it i mean it's not it almost like there's you could almost it's almost like underground comics uh, you know like <laughs> right. there is a feel to it that's that you know wouldn't be that out of place in you know 60s underground comics yeah there's a little it's like it's almost like a chester gould with a little bit of robert crumb thrown in kind of in yeah. its own way yeah. so yeah <laughs> that, that kind of thing um and so then the final strip is the whip uh drawn by george storm who did mostly humor comics he doesn't have any uh, comic book credits past 1948's Buzzy, which was a, a humor strip, and was also drawn, also written by John B. Wentworth. So he's this is another creation of his. Now this is one of these things where the individual panel art I think is good or 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 okay, but the profile of the whip at the top of page one, I love that profile, and I wish the rest of it looked that good. It looks awesome. <laughs> Uh, he does look like a little bit of a dark on that, but I mean, it's, it, but the, it's like, it, I see what you're saying though. I mean, it is much more competent than the, the rest inking of it. is really yeah, not really better. slick. It's, I would guess that maybe somebody else drew it. You know, I mean, I think it's possible. Maybe. Okay. Uh, but you know, I, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think this one is all right. I think that this, it, you know, this particular story feels more to me like the, you know, the, my, my least favorite of the go like this, I feel like this is, um, you know, uh, the way you feel about Cliff Cornwall, the way I feel about this strip, like it just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it's a Zorro ripoff. It doesn't like have like this, this panel to panel storytelling is not that competent in some places, you know, mm. and, uh, it's not, I don't know. It just, it feels real dashed off in a way that, uh, that I'm, I don't know. I'm just not as into Okay. I mean, look, I think part of it is just the fact that I love, I mean, the reason I love Indiana Jones, the whip is just, sure. that as oh, well, a tool that. is sure, such an sure. inherently cool tool yeah, to I have, agree. you I know? Agree. So it just, there's so many panels of him on the horse and he's, you know, whoosh, and he's grabbing somebody by the neck with the whip. And that's just inherently a cool visual, yeah, uh, which I, I like. I get that. I get that. So. And so he, even and that was, and the whip, I mean, I know I would love to know outside of letters pages, how they even figured out what was popular. Cause the whip ran in flash almost till the end. And so how did they know? How did they know? I don't even know. I mean, there? I don't know how, I don't quite understand how they ever knew back then because it yeah. took, I mean, it was a newsstand thing. They printed, they, you know, they over, you know, and some of these comics sold like in the millions sometimes mm-hmm. back then. Mm-hmm. Right. And they, uh, and, you know, and they're overprinted, way overprinted at that because of the, uh, because of the newsstand, you know, because of the returnability of the newsstand. And like, so by the time they really know how many of them sold, they don't know how many sold based on how many are, are shipped out. They know how many sold by how many like ripped off covers they get back. Right. Right. You know, yep. after, that don't sell. And so like how you would ever make publishing decisions based on what's popular, but. Let me just say, let me say, maybe that was a good thing, right? right? Like maybe not having that kind of information, you know, at your fingertips, you know, having being a little bit more ignorant about exactly what's selling and exactly what everybody loves, uh, gave people a little bit more freedom to come up with shit and, you know, uh, and do misfires, but also go out on a limb with something that you, you wouldn't know otherwise. So I, 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 I don't necessarily think it's bad that people didn't, uh, you know, that they didn't, they didn't have all of that sort of 
demographic information and all that at hand. <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also, I mean, I, I'm guessing if you're the editor, uh, you're putting, you're trying to put together in 1940 with 1940s level technology, you're trying to put together 64 pages a month, coordinate how many different art teams, how many different writer teams. I mean, writer and artist teams, that's a lot of work. That's just, just a lot of just, you know, of, of sweat equity, getting it yeah. done. And maybe uh, John Wentworth and George Storm were really consistent. And they were just easy to work with. And so it's yeah. like, eh, good enough, yeah, you know? Totally. And, you know, like, it's even now, it's more important that something is done than it's <laughs> great, right? So, like, yeah. you know, I'm sure that, you know, this is a lot. And I don't, I, you know, somebody who has a deeper knowledge of, you know, comics history than me would know. But, like, I don't know if these, you know, if these strips are pulled from different studios and put, you know, like packaged from different studios or all from the same place or what, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know where they're coming from, but if, you know, if that editor has a finished story in front of them, almost no matter what it is, I'm sure they're like, it's going in, you know, yep. like this is, this is, this, uh, this is filling up those pages. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right back, it's not like now you can text somebody or email hey where's where's when's that story getting you had to call these guys and they had to like mail it up no fedex in 1940 they had to, they yeah. all lived in new york they had to mail yeah, they it all lived in new york i'm sure they, they probably just brought them into the yeah. office yeah, yeah. <laughs> why are you gonna pay to mail it <laughs> oh my god yeah exactly so that's famous first edition uh, number f8 it, it was the last issue of this series until 1979 where dc brought it back for a one-off where they did superman number one which was the tie into the movie and then of course just a couple of years ago they brought it back once again and did the new age uh new fun comics number one which is the first dc book ever but this was the last regular issue of famous first edition and as i've mentioned in other episodes where we've talked about famous first editions some of these books were done as hardcovers as well this one as far as i know never was this only exists in a soft cover edition i've never seen a hardcover one if, it, if it's out there i would love to own it uh but as far as i know it was just a soft cover but man you know i bought this again i said i bought this off the stands and i loved it i loved the the the, the again the window into, into what the 1940s comics looked like and yeah it's rough in some places but you can't the core concepts that uh, especially Gardner Fox is presenting are just timeless because again, yeah. they're still being used to this day. Yeah. It's amazing. No, I, I thought this, this book was super fun. I, it was really great going back and, and just kind of like, you know, I, I, I just, I, I do love stuff of that era. I've, I've always wanted to do, uh, you know, a, a DC golden age characters book. I don't even understand how to do that at this point, but, um, uh, but like I, uh, because it's also convoluted now, but like I, I, I've just, I've always wanted to do like a 40s superhero story, uh, that like, you know, that, that just, just had some of that, some of that feel. I love the old stuff and this was super fun. Well, before we, before we wrap up here, I want, I'll ask you an exit question is, so let's say, Gabriel, that, uh, DC comes to you. I was about to say DC Comics, but they're not DC Comics anymore. They're just called DC. DC comes to you and they're like, look, you we're going to pay you to do a one-off of any, and you can do whatever you want, of any character from Flash Comics number one. So it's got he's either got to be Flash, Hawkman, Johnny Thunder, The Whip, Cliff Cornwall, or even the Demon Dummy, if you want to, or maybe even <laughs> Ralph Farnham, Space Pirate. It's up to right. you. Yeah. What would what would you want to do? What do you think you would love to What do you think would be fun for you to draw for like, say, eight, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 pages? Um, I'd like to do a whole issue, uh, certainly, uh, but, okay. uh, but the, 
I, I'm not going to torture you by saying Cliff Cornwell. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm not going to like deliberately hurt your feelings that way. But the, uh, but like I, and, and so probably the way that I, I, I would probably, I'm sure that I would go with Hawkman. I mean, that's, okay. uh, you know, that, that is, even though like there's a little bit of like, eh, he's a character who's still around. Like that's, it's been used so much. There's probably something more to do with some super obscure character. Uh, but I've always wanted to do some kind of the Hawkman story, less so the, the golden age version with all of the, you know, the kind of, uh, you know, exoticism trappings. Mm-hmm. I, I do prefer the kind of, you know, space Hawkman. Yeah. Space Hawkman. Um, and actually, uh, I did, um, uh, with my ex writing partner, uh, I, uh, I did, uh, Green Lantern, these right. Green Lantern Earth One, uh, yep. books. And, uh, that was, even though it's not, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a reinvention of it and more contemporary thing. It was very much looking back at the kind of Silver Age version of, uh, Green Lantern and going, how do you make this kind of like a sci-fi story? And, uh, and there, there was going to be a, there, there are two volumes of it. There was going to be a third volume of it, but some things happened and it, it is not going to happen now. But, uh, but a big part of it was going to be, uh, uh, Thanagar and, uh, Hawk people and stuff like that and bringing that in something I've always wanted to mess around with and always wanted to play with. So it, it, it would do that. I, I would even do a golden age version of Hawkman, but here's what I propose instead. I'd like to do a book that had every one of these characters in it. Oh, right. Like, uh, and, um, you know, several of them are contemporaneous. Somehow the, you know, I think the, the whip is the only one that's like a kind of period story. Right. If it is, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, and so there, there's there's some way to work it in. I don't want to be one of these continuity nerds who, uh, you know, who are all about just weaving together references. I'd want to really tell a worthwhile story with it. But uh, but yeah, that that's my idea. I want I would like to do a, uh, you know, a sort of flash comics number one tribute by like telling a story that uses every one of these characters. Oh, I love it. I love it. That's a great idea. All right. Super. That's even a better answer than I would have expected. So, well, uh, Gabriel, thank you so much for doing this. I love it when I get, when I get to have, uh, comics pros to, to talk about these books because it's to me just adds something extra special. And there's, uh, you know, I, I, as, as someone that, that did art for, you know, for many years, there's something I really appreciate of, of being a kid. And I got to appreciate comic art in a way that I don't think I would have, you know, not seeing it at this size. I mean, I love regular comics. I love digest comics, but I have said, this is still my favorite format. Nothing was more exciting to me as a kid than the treasuries and getting to see, uh, some of the best comic art out there at this size was just so special. So, uh, and this was one that this book is especially beloved to me and I've been wanting to get to it for the longest time. So thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. Then we have to you- talk about the super friends, right? <laughs> That's right. That's next. We got to get the, we'll get you on uh, for all mankind. So why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Uh, I mean, you know, things are a little, uh, a little dicey these days. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still on Twitter at Gabriel Hardman, uh, and also on, uh, Mastodon and on, uh, one of them, Hive maybe for this is the same thing. Uh, none of that's all going all that well, or you know, it's all, it's all a big mess, but, uh, you know, um, that, and I'm on Instagram as Gabriel Hardman art, which, uh, which is a little more solid, although really mostly all you're seeing on there are photos of my dog and my, uh, weekly figure drawings. So, um, 
but yeah, you could find me out there. I'm working, you know, I'm working on new comics that, uh, after taking a break to work on a film for a couple of years, I'm back to, you know, back to working on comics and I'll have more announcements for things, both the, some stuff for DC and, uh, create our own books that are on the horizon. Very exciting. Now I, w- I will not mention on air what film that you're working on. Yeah. Don't mention I, that I worked on Indiana Jones five, but the, yeah, oh, uh, sorry, but sorry. like, uh, it's, uh, <laughs> but I just can't, I can't talk about it. So it's not worth mentioning. I will just say that if I don't like it, I will blame you. So, uh, if, if no you pressure. don't like it, uh, I, I don't <laughs> care and I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> That's a good attitude to have about most things. <laughs> I would say. So, well, again, Gabriel, thank you. So it's always a blast talking to you, whether it's movies or comics or whatever we've talked. We've now talked about Citizen Kane. We've talked about Bob Dylan. We've talked about Val Luton. Yeah. And now, now flash comics. So you are a Renaissance man when it comes to this stuff. And, uh, yeah, that's, super, that, uh, the, the five factor of, uh, <laughs> that's not a word, I guess, but the, uh, of, uh, of, of the super friends. We'll bring it all together. I can't wait for that. So anyway, thanks so much for doing this. Everybody uh, stay tuned. I'm going to play some podcast promos. And when I come back, I'm going to do some listener feedback. Hmm. I crave superheroic content. Let's see what's on. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Mm, nah, don't think so. I'm Batman. Mm, not really what I'm looking for. I am vengeance. I am the knight. I am Batman. Ugh, absolutely not. This is Robin the Boy Wonder. I'm Batman. Aha, now that's more like it. If you see Adam West as the one true Batman, then this is the podcast for you. Tune in every other Thursday on your favorite podcast source to hear Tim and Paul discuss the 1966 series and everything connected with it. What's the podcast called? To the Bat Poles. To the Bat Poles. To the Bat Poles. world on fire an all-star squadron podcast join your host billy d and herman as we take a deep dive into the seminal dc comic series created by roy thomas and rich buckler we'll be covering the series issue by issue spotlighting our favorite characters and talking about the historical tie-ins as well so join us every month in a World on Fire and All-Star Squadron podcast. Coming in December 2020 to a podcatcher near you.
And it's time for a listener feedback. And these are the comments we got on Treasure Cast episode number 77. Giant superhero holiday grab bag. So many words uh, with my guest, Chris Franklin. Uh, these, of course, are the comments from our website, finewaterpodcast.com. First up is Bucky749, who says, another great episode. And Chris did great. I look forward to seeing what book you tackle next. And also, happy holidays. And also, since no one will, a- no one else will ask, uh, I will. Has your score in your pinball machine gotten any higher? Uh, thank you, Bucky. Uh, no, uh, it has not. I don't, I have to admit, I don't play it as much as I thought I would. I love having it, but it, I thought I'd be playing it for like hours a day or something. <laughs> I really don't. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, to that end, I, my skills at the, the Flash Gordon pinball game have not gotten, uh, any better. So I'll have to, I'll have to work on that. Uh, next up is, uh, my pal Captain Entropy, who says, I'm 24 minutes into this outstanding episode, and I just have to be a pedantic spring butt and tell you that this Submariner Dale, Daredevil story was not in Son of Origins. The Daredevil story in that is the one with the blind Vietnam vet and the awesome uh, Coleman art. Maybe this one wasn't Bring on the Bad Guy, since it's a gap in both my knowledge and my collection. Now that I've given the world another example of my own character flaws, I'll return to listening. Merry Christmas, true believers. R.W. Lovejoy follows up with, The story was in Marvel's Greatest Superhero Battles. The FF versus the Hulk story is also in that collection as well. Uh, and then uh, well, other people commented on which book it was in. Yes, uh, I was misremembering which Fireside edition it was in. I had Marvel's Greatest Superhero Battles uh, Fireside book as well. So that must have been what I was thinking of. I remember reading it as a kid in that format, and I was just misremembering which book. Uh, I love that in... Uh, Captain Entropy, uh, taking me to task for getting something wrong, he, uh, instead of writing Gene Colon, which is what he meant, he wrote Coleman. So I just, uh, not to be a pedantic spring butt myself, but I had to point out to him that he he got that wrong. Uh, <laughs> Edo Boznar uh, follows up. He says, yes, the DD versus Namor and Thing versus Hulk stories have nothing to do with Christmas, but it seems fitting to me that they were included in this Christmas treasury. That's because both stories were included in the Fireside reprint book, Marvel's Greatest Superhero Battles, which I received as a Christmas gift in 1979. I think. So I immediately associate every story in that book with the holiday. And Superhero Battles was by far the absolute best of the Fireside books. And that's saying something because they were all so great. Yes, absolutely, Ado. Otherwise, I like that Chris mentioned all the wisecracking the thing did in those two issues of Fantastic Four. I found that one of the many things that make the story so memorable. My personal favorite line is when the FF and the Avengers are getting to know each other in a bit of downtime and the thing is up to Thor and says something like, hey, Curly, is that get up of yours for real? By the way, not only did Roy Thomas drop the ball on Spidey's solo confrontations with the Sandman, so did you guys. Besides Amazing Spider-Man number four and Angel number one, he also fought Sandman and Amazing Spider-Man numbers 18 to 19. Okay, he was mainly running away from him in the first issue, but they ended up tossing in the second issue, which also featured the Enforcers and the Human Torch. Anyway, great show as usual, gentlemen. It's too bad that there's apparently no more superhero Christmas treasuries to discuss. Yeah, I think we've we've got them all at this point, you know. Uh, well, again, Chris and I'll have to come up with something else uh, next Christmas. We've got 11 months to figure it out. Uh, Jim uh, just pops in to say, I really enjoyed this podcast. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you, Jim. Gene Papa says, another great podcast. I wonder if that interior art piece includes the vision, because when this collection was originally being put together, Marvel intended to include the Avengers story, even an android can cry. However, for whatever reason, they did not use it in the book. Marvel eventually did include it in Giant, Giant Superhero Holiday Grab Bag Number 13, which you covered in Episode 30. It's at least marginally a Christmas time story, so it would have worked here. But I would guess that ultimately the decision was to made to make sure there was a Fantastic Four story in this treasury, which meant going with the two-part FF Avengers Hulk story. That's a good reason as any, uh, Gene. As Chris and I mentioned when we covered the Christmas with the superheroes, 
there was that uh, Captain Marvel Jr. story that got edited out. And in some ads, he's in he's on the cover. And then in the final cover, he's not there, but you can see him in the ad. So, yeah, there was, you know, there was a lot of rejiggering of these stories kind of at the last minute. And sometimes uh, art mistakes like that just slip through. Uh, Brett Young, of course, was a guest on this very show, says, great show. Thanks to Bob Kelly and Bob Franklin. The December episode of Treasure Cast always brings up the same time under traditional question. What the hell is a blow mold? It is always great to hear from Chris. He's a founder of comics history knowledge and always adds to any show he's on. True enough to that, Brett. I wasn't familiar with this holiday grab bag treasury, but I do know nothing says the holidays like someone denying aid for a contracted disease, a dude falling out a window to his death, and a wet guy in briefs beating a blind man unconscious. Maybe it should have been called a Florida Christmas. This was a fun collection, though for a holiday edition, the better stories were the non-Christmas ones. The Bollywood Daredevil art was so clean and simple, yet told the story so well. Loved it. Although, Namor might want to rethink a fur cape when sitting on an underwater throne. I did appreciate Namor's insistence on smashing a door when he entered Matt and Foggy's office and then crashing through the wall to leave. If I had those powers, I'd never use a door. You're charging $700 for a 10-piece cookware set? Kapow! Right through the Williams-Sonoma front window. The Thing-Hulk fight was a master class in fighting while quipping. I prefer simple emo Hulk, but I thought that just an arm hair Hulk worked better in this fight as he could just play the villain to Thing's hero. This Hulk is just a dick, but clearly knows the Manhattan Transit system pretty well. So we'll give him that. Good thing Reed finally overcame his illness. Not only was Reed as dramatic as my Nana used to be when she had a cold, but insisted on cooking homemade pot pie for dinner. But Sue's hair seemed to get bigger as her grief increased. If Reed had stayed ill much longer, Sue would have come out of the Baxter building looking like Julius Irving. All in all, fun treasury. Thanks for a great Christmas episode, as always. And happy holidays to one and all. Well, thank you very much, Brett. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the whole understanding the... Uh, New York transit system. I admit, I can't really figure it out sometimes. I hardly ever use the subway, so the hook's uh, one up on me. Uh, Stevensky says, thoroughly enjoyed this episode, guys. You put that in all caps. Thank you. I've always been anxiously waiting for you guys to get to this issue, as I have distinct memories of receiving the giant superhero holiday grab bag. On Christmas of 1974, I was six years old at the time, and I'm guessing if Santa had actually paid through the book and spotted that impactful image, very impactful indeed, of Black Widow emerging from the shower, then I probably would have ended up with a Rudolph treasury instead. I've held on to my copy, and although it clearly shows the signs of wear and tear, a few years ago, I decided to frame it and hang it as part of our Christmas decorations. Even my wife agrees it is a wonderful addition to our holiday joy. Of course, she never paged through to see the sexy Black Widow either. Great show. Thanks. Thank you very much. Jason Keene says, I've never owned a Treasury comic until listening to this show. Rob, your enthusiasm for the f- format won me over. Aw. And a few months ago, I went to eBay to seek one out. Just by chance, my search led me to the very issue you covered in this episode. The cover was worth the purchase alone. I think the back cover, the heroes running away as a gag, I would love to see revisited. I previously read the Spider-Man Human Torch story as well as the Hulk FF Avengers issues. The first time I saw them, however, they were in black and white as Marvel Essential reprints, just like Chris mentioned. Clearly, the Treasury format is giving me a better view of the artwork. The larger images, not to mention more colorful, stir up memories of things looking bigger when I was younger. Highlights of the issue and your episode. I am in complete sync with the Misty Night confusion. I was happy to see her, but then thought it wasn't her, only to have the show confirm my initial thoughts. That's a great what-if story uh, in the idea of Sandman turning into a complete Fantastic Four villain. The other suit is less than impressive, but I do like the pre-programmed buttons gimmick. I know this was a Daredevil story, but it seems like every Namor story ever happened in this one. I'm an angry man, surrounded by warmongers. I will go make peace in the least peaceful way, and now back to the ocean for another month. I had no idea this was the first appearance of the red costume, considering how things went for him this issue. I'm surprised he kept the new look. The Bollywood art benefited greatly from the larger size. 
where Black Widow comes across as a bigger loser than Spider-Man usually does. Like you mentioned, I wonder if any modern writer has ever gone back and dug up the cult leader and thugs that nearly took Natasha out. The Kirby books are gorgeous, although the story really made me realize how sad we Samus Hulk is my definitive look for the character. Kirby's version of Ben Grimm, however, is perfect across both issues. The thing springing out of the water and into a speedboat, only to have the whole catch catch up from beneath the surface, all in one page. Shut up and take my money. To throw in my favorite thing quote, what way for a guy with long hair? You're okay. You even got muscles in your voice. Please bring back Chris whenever you can to get him for the show. I can listen to the two of you riff on great stories for hours. Thank you for introducing me to this format and providing such an enjoyable show. Happy holidays to everybody. Thank you very much, Jason. And I will just plug another one of our shows. If you really enjoy me and Chris talking, uh, go listen to Superman Movie Minute, where we we analyze the Superman, Christopher Reeve Superman movies, five minutes at a time. And to this point, we've gotten done Superman's one, two, and three. Uh, so if you like me and Chris talking, it's not comics exactly, but if you like me and Chris talking, you, you'll get more than your fill of that over on that show. And then finally, we got a comment from Dallin Bumgarden, who of course was a guest on this very show as well. He says, great episode, gentlemen, and such a great treasury. I bought several treasuries as a young lad, but none of them captured me quite like the holiday grab bags of Marvel. The covers were always awesome. And for a few choice years there, like the Archie Christmas Digest, I look forward to them coming out each season because they truly put me in the Christmas spirit. As I stated when I was on the show, my treasuries were the only part of my comic collection that somehow went missing over time. But I've managed to recollect all of the Marvel holiday issues, and I peruse them each December. Be well, good sirs, and happy belated holidays. Well, thank you very much, Dallin. And thank you, everyone, for the comments. I really do appreciate it. I always love uh, getting the feedback for Treasury Cast as it rolls in every month. And uh, I look forward to the comments on uh, this episode. And, of course, big thanks to my friend Gabriel Hardman. I'm just so honored that uh, such a renowned writer, comic artist, uh, and uh, movie storyboard artist would come on my show. And as I mentioned, this is the fourth show of mine that he's been on. And I just feel very, very uh, honored that he would take time out from his busy day uh to do one of my shows and so it was just really fun to talk about this treasury with him and talk about old 40s comic art and stuff like that it was just it's, it's always a thrill to talk to gabriel and uh so i really appreciate him him coming on the show so uh that is going to do it for this episode of treasury cast kicking off 2023 you can find all the episodes of this show on our website findwaterpodcast.com you can subscribe to the show in any podcatcher of your choice where we talk in treasury comics and other comics related stuff over on twitter at treasury comics and then finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you're going to unlock various rewards, one of which is to be named checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Jeff Pollier, Brett Young, and Mark Balbus for their support of Treasury Cast. I really do appreciate it. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next month. But until then, go big or go home. But what are you doing? You're retired. You could have died. Eh, Joe's going to kill me just for putting on the tin hat. <laughs> 